Roll sound. There are great directors. There are all-time great directors. Above them all are a scant few who demand a category of their own. Permanently ensconced among those elite few, Sir Alfred Joseph Hitchcock, Knight Commander of the Order of the British Empire. Hitch to his friends. The lore, the legend, the rumors, and the stories could fill books. Wait, they do. And so many of them revolve around a single film scene shot between December 17th and 23rd, 1959. During the shoot, the picture was referred to as Production 9401, or Wimpy, in honor of Rex Wimpy, a second unit camera operator. Just as well the public didn't know, yet, that the title was Psycho, and that its key scene depicted Janet Lee as Marion Crane being brutally murdered in a motel shower. It's believed that Hitchcock had intended Psycho to have a jazz score and no music whatsoever during the shower scene. Yet, when Bernard Herrmann composed his famous shrieking strings, Hitchcock not only used it, but doubled Herrmann's salary, insisting that the music gave the film 33% of its oomph. Popular lore has it Hitchcock shot Psycho in black and white to downplay the sight of so much blood, for which he used Bosco chocolate syrup. A likelier account suggests that Hitchcock, very much the businessman, wanted to make a high-impact film on a minimal budget, with less expensive black and white film stock, minimal locations, and relatively inexpensive actors. A less budget-conscious Bernard Herrmann created a score entirely for strings to complement the black-and-white texture of the film. Sure enough, the budget for Psycho was a reported $800,000, using the oh-so-economical crew of Hitchcock's popular TV series. It would go on to earn $50 million. Along the way, Alfred Hitchcock became a very wealthy man. Today, it's hard to understand the shock of the psycho shower scene, especially coming from Hitchcock, who for decades had made extremely popular, highly accessible, and only sometimes disturbing suspense pictures. Good afternoon. Here we have a quiet little motel, tucked away off the main highway, not that audiences weren't warned. In a popular trailer, Hitchcock offered a tour of the Bates Motel and home. Winding up in Marion Crane's privy, Hitchcock himself pulled back the shower curtain to reveal not Janet Lee, but co-star Vera Miles, naked to the shoulders. With the release of the film coming in June 1960, there was just one barrier between Hitchcock and his audience, the censors. Even the script presented potential problems. An early version of this scene has Marion telling a Texas oilman that she's spending the weekend in bed, to which he replies, bed, only playground that beats Las Vegas. In the end, the line was watered down to, you know, what you need is a weekend in Las Vegas, the playground of the world. I'm going to spend this weekend in bed. Thank you. 
Only with the reputation of Alfred Hitchcock did this film stand a chance of mainstream theatrical release. After all, it was the first major U.S. film to feature a toilet flush. The Motion Picture Association of America had many beefs, including the use of the word transvestite. They would only relent when assured that it was a clinical psychology term. And there's a great story, maybe even true, that, initially, Psycho was not passed by the release board because they believed Janet Lee's nipple was visible during the shower scene. According to legend, Hitchcock thanked them for their opinion, made no changes whatsoever, and resubmitted it two weeks later. This time, it passed. But who are the censors who strive to protect us from words and images and thoughts and ideas? According to author C. Edwin Baker and a growing army of consumers and activists, advertisers, not governments, are the primary censors of media content today. Who are today's censors? And does anyone really control what you see, hear, or even think? In the spirit of Hitchcock, permit me to make a case that C. Edwin Baker, like so many others, has got the wrong man in the age of persuasion. I want chicken, I want liver. I want a bottle of Coca-Cola, That's us! I see me the board! Hey, great. A toothpaste good fight, Captain. I can't believe I ate that whole... American Express Traveler's Checks. Don't leave home without them. And now, Terry O'Reilly and the Age of Persuasion. There you go again. Exhibit A, Big Brother, airing on CBS television, February 13, 2008. Contestant Adam Janinski is chatting in a group, expressing a hope that he can open a beauty parlor where special needs kids can get their hair done. Though, his way of phrasing it was a tad more colorful. I want to do a hair salon for kids with special needs, you know what I'm saying? That's so the retards can go together and get their hair done. You know what I mean? Oh, Disabled kids, kids especially, I can call whatever I want. I work them all day long, okay? I can call whatever oh, I want. Baby. I'm not saying anything offensive, right or wrong, bro? Yes, he really used and defended the word retards. CBS put some distance between itself and the remark, but aired it, suggesting that the comment was balanced by protests from a fellow contestant. They're not retards. They're retarded. Yeah, but you don't see how that's insensitive. I don't see what saying. I don't think that's bad. You don't think if I came calling them bad was bad? No. The CBS position didn't convince these guys. Have the lawn the whole neighborhood wants to play on. Lowe's now has the largest selection of John Deere mowers. Five points if you recognize their spokes voice, Gene Hackman. Lowe's, let's build something together. Shortly after, Lowe's announced it would no longer sponsor Big Brother. True. Autism activist groups lobbied sponsors to withdraw their ads from the show. And true, when a sponsor bails on a show, its marketability takes a hit, and the show's very future could be in peril. What's not true is the idea that Lowe's, by withdrawing its sponsorship of Big Brother, 
is trying to protect viewers from anything. That's just not their role. What is the role of a show sponsor? The sponsor's sole reason for being is to promote and protect its brand. And within a company, that brand is often personified in remarkable detail. We asked our own Steve Gardner to offer an example. Steve? Thanks, Terry. Let's assume your brand is a major laundry detergent. Within your company, the brand might be characterized as a 35-year-old mom. She determines what the family eats, she sets the agenda for family outings, and oversees decisions relating to household chores. She is solid, hardworking, and conservative. Her values and beliefs are important to her, and she makes decisions based on what's right for the family. To connect with like-minded consumers, you might sponsor a TV show whose tone is consistent with your brand's character and whose audience is brand compatible. When that sponsored program evokes controversy, you must decide quickly if it might reflect on the character of your brand and damage your image with consumers. Thanks, Steve. So when a company like Lowe's detaches itself from Big Brother, it isn't deciding what people should or shouldn't hear. It's protecting its brand, period. This might be a good time to ask, what the heck is a censor? For the answer, you need to head back to ancient Rome and one Marcus Porcius Cato. Keith? Keith? Different Cato. He would become known as Cato the Elder, and more commonly, Cato the Censor. Appointed Roman censor in 184 BC, he was in charge of the census, and he was overseer of Roman morality. As you might guess, he was quite the partius pooperus. He imposed taxes meant to limit the amount of bling a woman might wear. He moved to limit the number of guests one could have at a party. He discouraged hanky-panky with slaves. People loved the guy, largely because he targeted not the great unwashed, but the elite muckety-mucks of Rome, including a senator whose career Cato ended because the man was caught kissing his wife right on the jaw in the presence of their daughter. Since then, censor has come to mean cultural and intellectual control. And the word came up a lot some 2,000 years later in another wantonly decadent culture. Hollywood. With the 20th century still in diapers, the popularity of cinema soared, and its impact on the culture huge. Yet concern quickly grew about the content of popular film. Some audience members were thrilled, others appalled by such saucy Hollywood offerings as the bigamist, Cupid's barometer, female highwayman, and behold, my husband comes. Groups and individuals voiced their disapproval of such shocking fare and raised enough ruckus, stop me if you've heard this one, to make Hollywood content a political issue. It was time for Hollywood to protect its brand. A humbled and intensely profitable film industry would submit to a strict new code of conduct invoked by William Harrison Hayes. 
It was a lesson well taken by the pioneers of commercial radio, who, in theory, rented the airwaves from the people. The advertisers who bankrolled those early broadcasts could create programs in the image of their brand and ensure that both show and brand were a perfect match. Presenting Mertz and Marge. The early dramas, variety shows, and soaps were immediate DNA relatives of the brands who begat them. The story of Mertz's efforts to help Marge rebuild her life after the death of the husband who meant so much to Marge, brought to you by the makers of concentrated super suds in the blue box, the new all-purpose soap for laundry and dishes for every household use. The big U.S. networks didn't need that DNA compatibility with its listeners. But they did want to keep the shows clean so advertisers wouldn't be scared away. Which is why many wrote voluntary codes of conduct. Any mention of sex became taboo. Which meant an end to lectures and public service programs on venereal disease and birth control. They're not even American! The anti-Semitic rants of Father Charles Coughlin led to his removal from the air and a disclaimer policy still used today, where stations distance themselves from views expressed within paid programming. According to the Routledge Encyclopedia of Radio, common trouble areas were simply avoided. Labor unrest, socialist policies, pacifism, politics deemed radicalism, birth control advocacy, criticism of advertising, anti-prohibition speeches, unorthodox medical practices, unorthodox religious opinions, excessive excitement in children's shows, words deemed offensive, and suggestive situations. Major networks had specific codes, preventing off-color songs and jokes, astrology and fortune-telling, and irreverent references to the deity. Oh, and on network radio, criminals could not be glorified. Mr. District Attorney, starring David Bryan. Mr. District Attorney, champion of the people, defender of truth, guardian of our fundamental rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yep, crime didn't pay. It's the rules. On radio, if you ran afoul of the law, all you got was a one-way ticket to, well, a stall full of alfalfa. Look where he landed. Yes. A stall full of alfalfa. Let's take him in. You've got to think those old-time audiences would smack themselves to imagine their grandchildren watching Dexter, a program whose protagonist, mind you, is a serial killer. Networks protected their own brands and, in turn, their licenses and tried to keep the seas calm for their advertisers. But a storm was coming, and it would make landfall smack in the middle of the Sunday night family hour. My name is Terry O'Reilly, and this is The Age of Persuasion. If broadcasters were the gatekeepers for popular entertainment, the chief gatekeeper held court Sunday nights. He was Edward Vincent Sullivan. On his shows, acts would perform live, not lip-synced. And that would stretch the tolerances of his audience, his network, his sponsors, and Ed Sullivan himself. 
The Rolling Stones played the game, changing their lyrics from let's spend the night together to let's spend some time together, but not without some industrial strength eye-rolling from Mick Jagger. Everyone played nice. Both Bo Diddley and Buddy Holly incurred the wrath of Ed by refusing to sing the song Sullivan requested. Holly was treated coolly. Diddley was banned outright. As were the doors. After Jim Morrison agreed not to sing the line, Girl, We Couldn't Get Much Higher in the song Light My Fire, then sang it anyway, live, as Ed fumed off stage. which raises two very interesting points about marketing and censorship, both brought to light a century earlier by one Samuel Langhorne Clemens. In 1885, it was Clemens, under the pen name Mark Twain, who published The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, a book banned by many a library and school board, initially because it portrayed truant, pipe-smoking boys who disrespect authority an attitude the author did little to hide in himself. In the first place, God made idiots. That was for practice. Then he made school boards. The first point, censorship can help sell a product. When the Public Library of Concord, Massachusetts banned Huck Finn as, quote, trash and suitable only for the slums, Twain remarked, that will sell 25,000 copies for us for sure. The second point, fashions in sin change. Today, Huckleberry Finn remains among the top 10 books whose content is most challenged in American libraries, but not for the same reason. Then, it was the attitude of the boys. Today, it's the casual use of the N-word, an inseparable part of the culture Twain knew as a boy. As we're so fond of mentioning, Gone with the Wind thumbed its nose at the Hayes Code in 1939 with one unforgettable profanity. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Today, damn is no big deal. I could say damn all I want on national radio. Damn, damn, damn. Excuse me. Okay. I can say damn within limits. But today's TV advertisers might want to distance themselves from Gone with the Wind because of a different D word. Tara, don't you know that they've been fighting all day around Tara? Do you think you can parade right through the Yankee army with a sick woman, a baby, and a simple-minded darky? Darky. Essentially, the N-word in a velvet glove. It's a hard truth in popular culture. Yesterday's normal is today's outrageous. Nancy, I hate you. The best figure in the office, and you eat candy between meals. No ordinary candy. It's AIDS. The AIDS diet plan is helping me lose weight deliciously. How? AIDS works two ways. It helps satisfy your hunger and has an effective appetite suppressant. Taste. Mmm, delicious. I can eat AIDS and be less hungry, too, before each meal. That's in the plan. So I can lose weight like you. Mm-hmm. Lose weight deliciously with the aid of AIDS. Use only as directed. Hitching their brand to fashions and media, advertisers are forever learning and relearning a brutal lesson. What's tolerable today is one thing, but, well... After all, tomorrow is another day. 
So I watched the basketball game last night. Should advertisers be commended or condemned for dropping their association with the granddaddy of shock jocks, Don Imus, who, on April 4, 2007, described members of Rutgers University women's basketball team thus. That's a nappy-headed hose there, I'm going to tell you that now. Man, that's some... And uh, the girls from Tennessee, they all look cute, you know, so... Were advertisers to blame for sticking with Imus after a 1984 interview, when he described rival Howard Stern as a slut, and, noting Stern's Jewish heritage, suggested Stern be put in an oven. On uh, Friday, I apologized for some remarks that I made and others made, but particularly ones that I made. Was it public outcry or the threat of losing ad dollars that prompted Imus to apologize for the Rutgers remark? I thought it was important that I apologize to these young women and to that coach and to their parents and to you for what I said, and so that's what I did. Ellen, where are you? I was in the closet. <laughs> What better than the outing of Ellen DeGeneres in the 90s to illustrate just how little power advertisers have over cultural content? As the air date approached, buzz grew, and several groups contacted Ellen's sponsors demanding they drop their ads. Some already had. Chrysler, Johnson & Johnson, and General Motors announced they wouldn't advertise on the show though only Chrysler cited the show's content as its reason, stating they preferred to avoid hot potato issues. Ellen, are you coming out or not? <laughs> yeah, Ellen, quit jerking us around and come out already! What happened? Susan, I'm gay. Other advertisers lined up to take their place. Brands whose target consumers weren't as inclined to care about a network outing. Industry scuttlebutt has it, ABC even doubled its ad rates for the broadcast. The phrase, advertisers as censors, suggests a cabal of suits deciding for you which radio and TV shows, music and news stories, and art are suitable and which are not. When in reality, sorry, it isn't about you. It's about growing and protecting a brand. Gone are the days when sponsors can control what writers and producers create. What they can do is withhold their ad dollars from content that won't help or might hurt their brand. For this, they're often accused of censorship. Which raises a nifty point. Whenever art is sponsored, it's usually confined to the sensibilities of the brand that's backing it and of the audience that brand wants to reach. Viewed from another angle, it's content that's most attractive to advertisers and their consumers that is likeliest to find backers and reach an audience. Does advertising influence art? Absolutely. Even Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. During an early scene, Janet Lee encounters character actor John Anderson as a used car dealer. I'm in no mood for trouble. What? There's an old saying, first customer of the day is always the most trouble. But like I say, I'm in no mood for it, so I'm going to treat you so fair and square that you won't have one human reason to give me... Can I trade my car in and take another? Do anything you've a mind to. Being a woman, you will. Yep. There's a guy who spends a lot of nights on the couch. 
The scene was shot on a real used car lot near Los Angeles. Trouble was, Ford sponsored Hitchcock's TV show. So, for the shoot, the real inventory of cars was removed and replaced with bright, shiny Fairlanes, Mercuries, and yes, Edsels. That's the one I'd have picked for you myself. In the end, censorship is a tricky business and expensive. Mark Cherry, the creator of Desperate Housewives, recently admitted that he spends $100,000 per week digitally removing nipples from his shows because he has actresses who refuse to wear bras and standards and practices insist those nipples have to go. Cherry adds that words used in NYPD Blue back in 1993 cannot be used in 2008, even after 10 p.m. The FCC and the Standards and Practices departments at the networks are, in the words of Mr. Cherry, hindering us in our abilities to be as fully creative as we would like to be. And therein lies the constant tug-of-war between show creators, networks, standards and practices departments, the government, and the one group they all serve, the general public. You'll notice that one word is missing in that list. Advertisers. Advertisers who want to appeal to the broadest audience must make decisions on how best to protect their brands. They gravitate to the proven and popular and shrink away from the risky and contentious. They don't demand edits. They simply withdraw their advertising and move on. Holding a wet finger in the breeze, they gauge the ever-shifting winds of popular opinion. That's where the real power lies. I have seen the censor, Pogo, and he is us in the Age of Persuasion. The Age of Persuasion? No, wait. Age might offend older listeners. We'll go with time and persuasion. Now, that sounds too manipulative. Let's say coaxing. No, no, asking nicely. The time of asking nicely is created. No, wait. Was it created or did it evolve? By Terry O'Reilly and Mike Tennant. Engineer Keith Oman. No, 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 that's wrong. Let's say Keith O'Person. Title theme by Ari Posner and Ian Lefevre. <sighs> Parental discretion is strongly advised. The Age of Persuasion is produced for CBC Radio by Pirate Toronto.